0: Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, May 23rd, 2021. It focuses on Peter's bold confession of Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of the Living God. The message to all who will listen is submission to Jesus makes sense in light of who He is. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. (music) you pray with me father we thank you that you are here and we love you and we're so grateful that you take care of our needs and more than the physical needs for healing and for food and shelter but that you have supplied for us the way the way to life and we're so grateful that you've done that through jesus and father we worship you for giving him and jesus we thank you for your sacrifice which satisfied God's wrath against sin, not against us, but against sin. And I just thank you, God, that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that we have been raised to life and given new life and adopted into your family, Father, that we're sons and daughters of God because of what Jesus did. And I pray that you would continue to bless and to work through your church for your glory right here and wherever the church is exalting the name of Jesus. We confess today that Jesus is the name above all names, and we worship you, and we honor you, and now I pray that your spirit would speak to us through your word, and that you would help us to see Jesus as he is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was walking into Walmart sometime this week, I believe, maybe it was last week, an employee, a young employee, aren't they all when you get older? Anyway, this young man looks at me and he says, Hey, didn't you work at Skyline years ago? (laughs) Yes, years ago I did that. I didn't recognize him, but uh, I figured it wouldn't hurt to say yes, since he obviously figured out who I was. I said yes, and I still work there at a few odd jobs. I knew it, he said. I went to Skyline in fourth grade. We used to call you Snowball. That was a clue that he was definitely one of those kids. (laughs) So just so you know, Snowball is not my favorite nickname ever, but with my hair, it was bound to happen, right? You get elementary school kids, middle school kids in a room and they're gonna come up with something like that for the white haired guy. You're either gonna call him Snowball or you're gonna call him Mr. Snowball. (laughs) I think most of those who knew me as Snowball are in college or out on their own and I hide from them normally when I see them coming. Anyway, thankfully, Snowball, I probably shouldn't be telling this story because, you know, Snowball has kind of lacked staying power. Nobody calls me that anymore. The names that I'm known now at school are Mr. Mike, Mr. Kneifert, Coach or Coach Kneifert, and I like those a lot better than Snowball. And no, you may not call me Pastor Snowball. (laughs) Even if some of you have the maturity level of a fourth grader. All right. Anyway, well, we're going to talk about names today. And Jesus, besides his birth name, is called quite a few different names throughout the New Testament. And today in the passage that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to find out some of the things that people had been calling him. Uh, I guess, behind his back, but not in a malicious way, just they were kind of mumbling and wondering, who is this guy? So we're going to find that out. We're going to start at verse 13, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, and we're going to go through most of the rest of this chapter. So if you've got your Bible with you, you're going to want to stick your finger in there. If you've got a phone and you're looking on your Bible app, I don't know how you stick your finger in. And Anyway, you'll have to figure that out. So... Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 14. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, who do the the people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So forget that you know who Jesus is. Does it make sense that those who have seen Jesus in action suspect that he might be one of these people? I think it does. Think of all the miraculous signs that they've seen. Think of the rumored happenings. Jesus has got to be some kind of prophet, somebody from God. He speaks with authority. He works miracles in God's name. Other than a prophet, what else could he be? If not a powerful idolatry confronting Elijah-like dude, he's probably this weeping over God's people Jeremiah-like man. I mean, who else could he be? Haven't we seen enough already in the first 15 chapters of Matthew to really get why they think he might be Elijah? Listen to this quick snippet from Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. Matthew describes Jesus' actions with these words. This is Matthew 4, 23 and 24. Did I say 25? Anyway, 23 and 24. Jesus went through Galilee So last week, I mentioned all the signs that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had seen. Without belaboring the point, again, they had witnessed Jesus heal a paralyzed man, a woman with a long-standing bleeding disorder of some kind. They'd seen a dead girl walk out of her bedroom. Alive, they'd watched a blind guy or two go from staring blankly out into space and tripping over stuff and guessing where people were to tracking the movements of their friends. In a few chapters, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 38 to 39, we're going to see Jesus do the Jeremiah weeping prophet thing as he mourns over Jerusalem's coming downfall. Here's what it says in Matthew 23, verses 38. And 39, he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, immediately after these words, Jesus, as Matthew 24 gets underway, predicts the destruction of the temple and speaks of the end times, which he makes this abundantly clear, will not be pretty. He speaks of the disheartening rise of wickedness and the persecution of those who name him Lord. There's hope in chapter 24 as well, but what I'm getting at is the reasons that someone might call Jesus Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets, they're there. He's like them. But he's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. We'll see this truth soon enough. The people naming him prophet didn't have a big enough vision. They were taking a stab at the truth in the dark and just missing it by that much. In the same way, today, there are many who name Jesus a good teacher or a moral sage. They stand in awe of his teachings, but refuse to call him Savior, He's not king in their lives. They're missing the point of his life, in fact. He didn't come solely to speak truth, but to go beyond the prophet's role. He came to rescue sinners, to save them from God's holy and righteous wrath against sin. If you believe Jesus is nothing more than a wise man or religious leader on par with Gandhi or Mohammed, your view falls short of what the Bible reports Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, along with Paul and the other writers in the New Testament, hold Jesus out to be more than a prophet, more than a good teacher. Who do the crowds say Jesus is? There are as many responses to this query today as there were in Matthew's day, as he was recording Jesus' life. And nearly all of them fall short of who Jesus actually is. So who is Jesus? As we read more in Matthew 16 now, we're going to hear a new possibility thrown out by one of his followers, a man who doesn't get a lot of good press and doesn't always get things right. But in this case, he says what the entire group of disciples has likely been thinking for some time. Let's read a couple of more verses. We're at verses 15 and 16 now. Matthew 16, 15 to 16 says, but what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Wow. Peter, bold as ever, just lays it out there for everybody. He confesses Jesus as the Messiah. He says plainly, I believe you are the son of God. These are both names which no one in the crowds had yet spoken. The masses aren't ready to go there yet. Prophet, sure. Messiah, Uh, I'm not so sure. Proclaiming Jesus as Messiah might have been by this time a religiously charged thing to do. Though the events of John chapter 9, which we're going to read in just a second, likely happened after Peter's confession, they give us a glimpse of the risk that folks who spoke up faced. Let me read a short section from John chapter 9. Before I read verses 18 to 23, let me set the scene. Jesus has healed a man who was born blind— That doesn't happen every day. He did so in an unusual way. He spit on the ground, made a bit of mud, and rubbed it on the man's eyelids. And then he sent him to wash off the grit in a nearby pool. The man did as he was instructed, and when he opened his freshly washed eyelids, he could see. He got home without assistance. The neighbors, they're staring at him aghast. They question whether this man was, in fact, the guy that they knew. I mean, it's not every day you meet a former blind guy. Long story short, an investigation is set in motion and eventually the Pharisees get involved. They grill the guy who had been healed. They want to know who commanded him to break the Sabbath by washing off mud. They're always worried about the weirdest things. (laughs) The man doesn't know Jesus' name, but he confesses what he thinks. He says he's a prophet. So stumped, the Pharisees visit the formerly blind guy's home. This is where we pick up at verse 18. Let me read those verses, verses 18 to 23. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received a sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now sees? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Did you catch it? The parents didn't want to get sideways with the Pharisees. They feared they'd be put out of their synagogue if it was suspected they were Jesus freaks. They'd lose their community, their connection with God's people. Can you imagine? Let's just think for right now. Can you imagine being banned from this fellowship? Makes it a little more real, doesn't it? That's what they were facing. The threat of this loss was enough to keep them from being straightforward about how their son had been healed. They wouldn't speak the name of the one they knew had given their boy sight. I'm sure they were grateful for the work of God, but it appears that the cost of speaking out in their minds was too great. Peter, by contrast, back in Matthew chapter 16, was all in with Jesus He'd left his father's fishing business to follow this man. He'd witnessed miracle after miracle. He'd heard all the stunningly, refreshing, clearly authoritative teaching of Jesus. He'd walked on water for a few seconds and witnessed this man with a word, calm, a violent storm, the raging sea. Come what may, Peter knew the truth and would not be silent, whatever the cost, whatever the risk. Jesus asked, who do you say I am? He said, you are the The Son of the Living God. Would you answer Jesus in the same way if he asked you, "Who you say he is? Do you believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God?" Just to make sure that we understand the name given to Jesus here, let me bring in Dr. Ronnie Kedmi's words about the first of the two names. The Hebrew word "Mashiach," meaning Messiah means the one anointed with oil. The custom of anointing with oil is a ritual act designed to elevate those designated for priestly, royal, or sometimes even prophetic roles, such as the prophet Elisha. Dr. Kedmi goes on to show how Jewish people today understand what the person who this name signifies would be like and how Christians hold Jesus out as the one who deserves this name. Scriptures are listed for both. I can give you the website. It's pretty fascinating. But it's not my intention to go into all the ways in which Jesus has proven himself to be a Messiah. We've looked at some of the evidence while examining previous chapters. My aim here is to define Messiah and state clearly this truth. Jesus is the king in the kingdom of heaven. Putting your faith in him makes you a citizen of this kingdom, More, it makes you a son or daughter of God, and heir of salvation, living as the king did, obeying God's commands, loving others, living in the power of the Spirit. It's the proof, the evidence that you're in. Is Jesus your Messiah? Do you know the son of the living God? Because it matters. I think we'll see how much it matters when we read the next section of Matthew chapter 16. We're ready for verses 17 to 20 now, and I'll read. You can follow along. The first thing I want you to notice, because it's of utmost importance, is this. Peter was only able to know and confess Jesus as Savior and Son of God because God the Father revealed this truth to him. He didn't just get the truth because he was especially clever. We know that he wasn't all that clever, and we're not all that clever either, right? Who Jesus was and is and always will be had to be shown to him. Is it possible that it is still that way today? I believe it is the Spirit's work to open the minds of each person to the truth. If revelation is not given, it's not likely that any of us would get it, that any of us would believe. We need God's help to come to faith in Jesus. The question, of course, is whether the Spirit opens up every person's mind or just the minds of those who will believe. And there is a raging debate on this issue. I don't want to get into it too much, but I will say this. I am in the camp which believes that salvation is offered freely to all, that the Spirit prompts all, shows all the truth, and we each have a choice to respond with a yes or a no. So, have you responded to the Spirit's work in your heart? Have you put your faith in the Messiah, the Son of the living God? You must believe in him or there is no salvation. Only those who've trusted Jesus will receive eternal life. Now... Don't forget anything I just said as we dive into a little deeper water now. Salvation is by faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right? Okay, you got that. Verses 18 and 19 are the center of a long-standing debate. Did Jesus make Peter the head of the soon-to-be-born church in this moment? Would a line of successors have authority to declare new revelation and rule over the affairs of the church for all time? You know that's questions out there, right? If you know anything of the Roman Catholic tradition, you know that they believe that the Pope is the rightful inheritor of Peter's authority. They believe that each Pope has the right to speak for God. Those outside this tradition shake their heads and say, I'm not so sure that the succession of key holders is what Jesus was talking about. Those outside the Roman Catholic tradition tend to think that Jesus was talking about the confession being the rock upon which the church would be built, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I am not going to end this debate today. It's been going on for multiple centuries. I lean, you would guess, toward the non-Catholic view, but I see where my Catholic friends are coming from, and I understand that. What matters most in my mind is this. There's a statement there that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. The church is going to go on and on and on and on, and it's going to grow and grow and grow because Jesus is its king and savior, and he is strong, he is mighty to save. Peter got it, and he proclaimed it. If you get it, do the same. Now, Jesus gave orders here to his followers not to spread the word because the time for doing so had not yet come, but the time is here now. You can go ahead and tell people who Jesus is. You don't have to hesitate. We can declare that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and we can say he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter got it. And then let's read the very next incident in Matthew's record. We're going to start in Matthew 16 with verse 21 and read through 23. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and be raised to life again. What does Peter focus on? The first part. This is actually the first time recorded in Matthew anyway, where he said that he's going to die and be raised to life. It's the first time he said it plainly. He's only hinted at it earlier. when We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he was asked for a sign. He says, all you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. You remember we talked about that a couple of times in Matthew 12 and then again in Matthew 15. So Jesus knows that the good that his death is going to bring about, it will satisfy God's wrath towards sin. He knows that his resurrection will show that that God has accepted the sacrifice, that people can find salvation. He is simply telling his disciples what's coming so that they can prepare for it. He's not looking for empathy or asking for help against his enemies, as it seems Peter suspects. He's giving out information that the 12 are going to need in the near future. Peter hears what his master says and rebukes him. Am I the only one who finds it comical that anybody is rebuking the son of the living God? It's the height of hubris. Does Peter really believe that he's got the clout to pull Jesus aside and set him straight? Does this story coming immediately on the heels of the you are the Messiah narrative not give you a bit of mental whiplash? The guy who received God's revelation of the truth concerning Jesus now gets things so wrong that Jesus has to put him in his place. Stop. You're not getting this from the Father like you did the Son of the Living God thing. This is from Satan, he's saying. You're paying attention to what matters to the world, but not what matters to God. Now, I can't really point fingers at Peter, can you? I mean, I far too often have a mind that's set on the things of this world instead of the things of God. I get the two mixed up thinking that God's way of thinking not to be the way that I think. I bet you get things turned around once in a while, too. God help us all. And he has helped us. Do you remember Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray way back in Matthew chapter 6? The beginning of the pattern of prayer that he gives them and every kingdom citizen is instructive. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but listen just to the first few words of this prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, and I'm just going to read the very first bit of this prayer in verses 9 and 10. This is Jesus speaking. He says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. We do not always know God's will for us or for the world. We seldom understand his ways because, as Isaiah put it, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. When we don't get it, we must simply submit to him and let him do his best, trusting that he's going to do what's good and right. Do you believe that God's going to get things right when you don't? He's going to get things right every time you don't. You know, the crucifixion didn't make any sense to Peter at this time. Later, it was going to make sense. I'm sure after he understood, he thanked God regularly for his patience with him and his mercy and grace. I thank God for his mercy and grace and long suffering. All right, we've got one more section to read before we're done. Let's look at the remaining words of Jesus from chapter 16. Starting at verse 24, we're reading through verse 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, this is verse 24, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Were they the first ones out of his mouth? You know, the deny yourselves, take up your cross, follow me stuff? Not bad words. We need to hear them if we're going to live in submission to the king who's the king of kings above all others, right? Who has that name above all others, We need to hear those words. This is the same thing that we were talking about a few minutes ago when we talked about focusing on the stuff of God rather than the things of earth. We need to be focused on what God wants. But there's more than give everything upwards here. Aren't there words that that give us something beyond that? Jesus says, deny yourself, and then he assures his followers that the cost that they're going to pay, the cross that they're going to carry, is going to be worth it in the end. What's coming for the believer is reward. Did you miss that word in worrying about whether you're gonna to have to take up your cross? It says you're going to be rewarded. It says that those who lose their life for his sake are going to be given life, better life than here. I mean, it's good when we get burgers, but it's, it, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes life here is not so great. And I bet some of you have memories that you wish you didn't have and things that you wish hadn't happened. This life is not all there is. There's more coming. Good stuff coming. And the rewards that we're going to receive from God in heaven are by far better than anything that you can imagine here and now. The good things here and now are just this big compared to the rewards in heaven, which I can't even make my arms go big enough to to represent. Can you imagine the God who created the universe rewarding you? It's going to be better than anything you can ever imagine. The life lived for God costs here and now, but the good to come, the good to come's better. The old hymn captures the truth so well. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Friends, what we've heard today from Matthew chapter 16 calls for a response. It calls you and me and every person to consider who Jesus is. It invites us to make him ruler over our lives. It welcomes us into the one true kingdom and gives us marching orders. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, and in the end, enjoy the reward that's given to every kingdom citizen. Life forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Should I add another one? And ever with the good and perfect King who died to save us from our sin and to rescue us from the wrath of God against that sin and who rose to give us this life that we live, this eternal life that comes by faith in Christ. Are you ready to respond to Jesus, our Messiah, our King, the one and only true Son of the living God? I invite you to submit to his rule to put your faith in him and to live for him, to let his will be done on earth just as it is done in heaven, to be done in your life the same way it's done. And the way it's done in heaven is perfectly obeying him. So I invite you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow, and realize that the cost is worth it in the end, to serve the one and only Son of the living God, the Messiah. I want to give you just a few moments to respond to God in prayer if you have never put your faith in Christ, I urge you to do so, to trust in him and to claim him as your Lord. Father, we began with a prayer of thanksgiving to you for what you've done through Jesus, and we end with one too. We thank you that you sent your son to rescue us and to save us from our sin. And we want to, once again, submit ourselves to you. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We confess that freely, and we worship you, and we're thankful, God, that you have sent Jesus. And we know that we need to treat others in a different way because of what you've done in us. We need to show the same patience and mercy and grace and forgiveness that you've shown us. That's the difference that you make in us. Kingdom citizens deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. Kingdom citizens act like the king. Help us this week to live like you did. I pray that your spirit would empower us, that your spirit would send out workers into the harvest field, and that we would be those workers. Help us to serve you faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.